you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alric Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. Wow. I have to join you in the wow. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on 245 more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I also do sales. This week, we have fabulous filmmaker, director, writer, cinematographer Savannah Block on the show to talk about making her first feature, and then there was Eve. She talks a little bit about what she learned about herself as a director and how making that film took her on a journey to focus on being a DP. After that, we talk about an article from The Hollywood Reporter on influencers and how even top creators find that star power is fleeting. And Ulrich and I talk about what makes a movie or show have an impact on us. But first, Ulrich, how are you? Good. Doing well. You know, after a holiday weekend, it's uh, it's nice to be, you know, at work. I'm actually at my office. It's very strange to be in my office. But yeah, I'm helping out. It really wasn't that bad of a commute. It was only 30 minutes. Really nice. thought it was going to be a lot worse than that. Nice. Maybe it's because it's like a Tuesday after a holiday. So it's actually like a Monday. Yeah. That's probably why. Yeah, I'm good. I uh, watched a lot of stuff over the weekend. You know, Stranger Things Part 2, of course, which was pretty great, I got to say. I'm not really... I don't have anything to really report exciting that's exciting. I've been working on those two projects on the edit. Mr. Eric Parnell, which has been going well. And then the movie work for um, Consumed on the online editing, which is cool. But yeah, I was supposed to go out of town this weekend, but then my, my wife's family all got COVID. So we couldn't go. So it was like a much different weekend than I was going to have planned. I normally actually was going to still be in Seattle right now. My flight would have been this afternoon, but it all got canceled. But I got to work on those projects and I got to barbecue some food. I saw some friends. It was a good weekend. One thing, I don't don't even know if I I did this yet, but I was going to let people know that I finally have the movie, the alternate is on IMD Pro. You could rate it and review it. So if you've seen the movie, rate it and review it. I don't know. Did I already say this, Liz? You're shaking your head. I don't think you have. I'm saying I'm shaking my head in agreement. You should use this platform to get people because I mean, IMDB is like, oh God, like the, I mean, you'll, you probably have experienced this, but like there just gets an onslaught of trolls for some movies and anything you do to counterbalance that is what I want you to do. Yeah. I I asked my, my, my closest friends to to go on there and do it. And they were like, yeah, can I give it a six out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10? Like, I was like, dude, what the hell? (laughs) You're going to give it a six. Just don't do it if you don't want to give a 10 out of 10. I don't know. They might have just been messing with me. But yeah. Wait, but no, we talked about this before. There's this, um, with IMDb, they sometimes disregard the extreme ratings, right? And then, ah, and that's why a lot of films, I believe, skew lower. And so your friends might have been trying to help you out, actually, rather than... So it's better to get, go with eights than it is with I tens? I think it is. I mean, this is old news. This is from a few years ago that I heard this. But yeah, I would encourage them to... to any Anything over the over five, really. <laughs> Anything from oh, like the five to nine range, I think, could be helpful. All right, people. So give me between eights and tens, or just eights. Everyone give eights. Eights or nines. Wanna, yeah, if you want to write a review, great. If you just want to leave a rating, that's great too. Really appreciate the love. It's it's getting exciting with the release. Like I just saw the DVD art uh, come through, so that looks really cool. Actually, I was sort of surprised with how cool I thought the the DVD packaging looked. Yeah. Excited to see where it lands. They're, they're just going into sales now. They're just about to start the sales process. So yeah, and hopefully in a month, I'll know where it's going. And I probably won't be able to say anything until like later. But yeah, I'm hoping that we get some good news soon. And yeah, the release is coming very soon. I also want to give a shout out to, to Timothy Cogshell, previous guest of the show, because he like wrote a review for the movie because he's the best in the world, but he hasn't released it yet because he wanted to release it when the movie was out. But but I needed a quote for my DVD art, and uh, you know I had like already like a, a lot of great quotes. But he's like the most well-known reviewer of all the reviewers I had. So I asked like, "Do you have a pull quote you can send me from the review? You don't have to send me the review, whatever." And he sent me the most amazing pull quote, and it basically I think it's still making my week. It was like on Thursday he sent it, and it's like I'm like just still riding high off that pull quote. So that was pretty amazing. But yeah, what's going on with you, Liz? Oh, that's so sweet. I love Tim Cogshell. Well, we got into another genre festival, but I can't say which one for this one for for witchy. So I'm very excited. So it means the first one wasn't a fluke, which makes me feel better. Like anytime Ooh. something good happens, it just like it like 
I don't even, I don't know, it takes um, a block of cement off of the like statue of imposter syndrome that I carry around with me everywhere. So it's just very nice. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Like, so I was pretty jealous that you got into Scream Fest. Oh. Will I be jealous of you for getting into this one? Is it that kind of festival or I, I know it? I'm excited. I would say I think it's less known than Scream Fest, but it was recommended by multiple people to me to apply to. Nice. And I'll just tell you offline. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait. I'm excited. I want this. To, can we just end right now so you can tell me? Yeah. I just want to know. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, let's see what else. I saw Moulin Rouge, the musical the other night, and was swept up in this idea that I want to do a play. So now I'm, <laughs> I always realize like I, that I like throw these things at you and you're like, I'm crazy. So <laughs> what? A play? Liz, my God, woman. Stay focused on one thing. <laughs> I know. I know. I think if I took all of my energy and put it into one thing, I, I could really make a difference. <laughs> The idea is I want to take this musical, I want to make a proof of concept short. I was thinking of also doing like a one act version of it, either submitting it to like Fringe or submitting it to there's various like one act festivals around the country and to connect with theatrical investors in that way. So working with the theater world for a musical and tapping into different investment populations is what I'm thinking of doing. Are you rolling your eyes at me, sir? You're going to raise money for a, th- a play and you're going to raise money for a movie and you're going to make a short film? No, I think I would have to self-finance the play. And I think it would be... I have a friend who used to do these concert performances where he wrote operas and then he would just have... This is probably very normal, but he would have the people at the front of the stage just sing the musical and you... Or the opera. And it was opera because there's no dialogue. And you just watched them perform standing out straight at you and there was no blocking and there was was just reading of the script. And so I'm curious about things like that. Maybe there's something there. Mm, Yeah. And the other only other thing is that we have no childcare for the next two weeks. So I'm even more intense and stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) So like that's fun. Nice. Uh, but that's all. That's 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 what's going on with me. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear how the play goes. It sounds like you're not really like making the play to be like a play that's going to do runs and all that stuff. It's like more like you're doing the play to like kind of support the fundraising of the feature. Yeah, and these right? are all. And I bring up ideas constantly in the show, like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this. But I also know that this is going to take years. So these are like. <laughs> <laughs> the kernels of ideas that are going to grow over the next several months. It's not like I'm like, drop everything. I'm doing a play now. <laughs> I'm still focusing on all the things I focused on before, uh, making progress. But I'm just thinking, well, why am I not tapping into this whole other world of art, artist support, you know, and, and potential investors, especially if it's a musical and there may be some crossover with the theatrical world. Yeah. I like it more as the idea of trying to use it to raise money for the feature. Yeah. Like, I think that I can get on board with easier than I can if you just want to do a musical on Broadway. Oh, no, I'm not interested in that at all. I think it's (laughs) like submitting to, yeah, doing, putting it like a one night thing or like a weekend thing or or maybe submitting it to playwriting festivals or something that I don't understand quite yet. Is I, I rescind my eye rolling. <laughs> my eye rolling has been rescinded because that makes a lot more sense. That's more like a strategy for fundraising. And yeah. it kind of sounds like a version of a table read, but like more fun. Yeah. Like a yeah, more yeah. fun table read. I think so. But do you know what else is also really fun? What's that? Patreon. Don't forget to support us on Patreon, everyone. www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Every single dollar it goes towards the making of the show. We really appreciate every we appreciate everything that you can contribute. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io and royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. They offer customized plants to fit your needs, which is great. Our code is MMIH, all caps, to sign up for a 20% discount today. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Savannah Block. Well, Savannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. And can you give us the elevator pitch for your film, And Then There Was Eve? Oh, boy. I haven't done that in a while. (laughs) It's about a woman who's grappling with the loss of her husband and learning to love someone new. She essentially loses her husband and meets this new woman, a jazz pianist, who she starts to fall in love with while she's learning about a past of her husband that she, she didn't come to terms with yet. It's a psychological drama. How many days did you shoot? 
We shot for 19 days in, it was a few days in San Diego, the rest in Los Angeles. And what was the rough budget, if you can say? The budget, can I say that? You, you, sh- yeah, at you should point? be able to. Pro- pro- probably <laughs> at, at this point, yeah, right? <laughs> I wonder. I, I don't know. It's funny how they just tell you not to ever say it. So it's like in your head and you always hesitate. It was $250,000. Nice. From start to finish, from like, because people have weird budgets out there. They're like, okay, that was production, that was post. <laughs> they neglect marketing, they neglect festivals. Like, I'm saying all included, start to finish, walk out the door, LLC fees, $250,000. I am. How'd you come up with the idea? I came up with the idea back in 2013. I had met somebody at a party who I was friends with, family friends. It was actually Rosh Hashanah. It's like a dinner. <laughs> Those Jews out there. <laughs> who it, I met someone and I remembered, I remembered her daughter. And so I said, hey, um, how is your daughter? And she told me about how her daughter is now her son. And so at that point, I had been writing some form of this story, but it wasn't quite what it is now. And so... I asked her, I said, what was it like for you? Because this was pre-transparent. So I didn't know a lot about trans issues at the time. And so I guess that's a spoiler alert, which I didn't include in the elevator pitch. But (laughs) (laughs) that's good. It's not really a spoiler. It's actually part of the marketing. And it's part of of knowing that ahead of time is is a good part of the the process. But yeah, so I, I ran into this woman and I asked her what it was like. And she said, I had to grieve the loss of my daughter and learn to love my son. And the entire film was really just built upon that sentence, like the losing somebody and, and learning to love the new version of them. And you know that happens in many different capacities. People came up to me after the screening and said it resonated with them in the way that they miss their child as a, as a, as a five-year-old. And now they have a different version of their child. And that was cool for me because that's really the crux of it is, is loving somebody through the evolution of self. You alluded to the fact that you came up with the idea in 2013, but I know that there's some more color to the timeline of production development and release. So the question is, how long did you spend working on the film from the idea to its release? Well, <laughs> I guess the idea came in 2013 the script came in 2015, production 2016, festivals 2017, and release 2018. So nice. the, the lesson learned, this is what I tell everybody. A lot of people email me about, you know, embarking on your first feature. And I think the lesson is find an idea you're excited about for at least five years. Yeah. Nice. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? This one was uniquely challenging because of the subject matter. It's sensitive subject matter. Casting was insanely important because our lead is a trans character. So appropriate representation in that way. And again, this is pre-transparent. So I think we started going to production after transparent. So that was helpful in that larger casting pools of trans women were available. But Ultimately, that was the biggest hurdle in addition to the normal hurdles of insanely low budget filmmaking. I don't know how to phrase this. So I'm going <laughs> to see if, it, if something appropriate comes out. You said this was before Transparent, but I also, you haven't mentioned, and I don't want to put you on the spot. So if there's anything you don't want to share or do you want to share, but usually there's this debate going on about who gets to tell what story. And so I just wanted to see if you had anything to share about telling this story and your personal connection to it doesn't mean I'm not making any presumptions when I'm saying this. I just want to hear why was this so important to you other than that conversation? Yeah. I mean, this is a question that I've battled with, honestly, post the film. I didn't have any hesitation making the film. And I think I've had a lot of, a hesit- a lot of hesitation after the film's release, because this is a question that's kind of arisen after we did the film to be honest. And in, in, in the, the cultural zeitgeist, well, you know, us asking ourselves, what stories are we allowed to tell? I was 25 when we started this. Like, I'm just going to put that out there because now I'm a lot older and I can see a lot of mistakes of being 25. So I did all the research. I'm, I'm really proud of the film. And we, the people we surrounded ourselves with felt like they were in, very much in support of the film. 
Now, the film is told from a perspective of a cisgender person. It's not told from the perspective of a trans person, and it's not a transitioning story. It is about how somebody's transition affects other people. And that's a very, that's a heavy question and something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, despite it being a truth. And I've had a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. I, does that mean this story doesn't deserve to be told? I mean, it literally is people's story. People have come up to me after screenings. People have emailed me. It's based on our lead act. It's it's loosely inspired by our lead actress's wife's novel, memoir, called She's Not the Man I Married. Her name's Helen Boyd. And a lot of the emotional truth comes from that experience. I asked her to be a consultant. She She joined as a consultant. And then I found out that... After she was a consultant, because I found out that her wife is an ex-broad, off-Broadway actress, like in the middle of Wisconsin, just doing like the not acting. So what's so cool about, I'd say that one of the coolest things that happened after this film is that we took Rachel from doing like videography at the University of Wisconsin to returning to acting, which is her joy. And now she's performing every week. She's on. She's back on on stage. She's part of the Oregon Shakespeare Fe- Festival, and now she's at Yale Conservatory doing some doing an original play. So that's cool. And so that happened. I would say because of and then there was Eve. I personally really struggle with the idea that you're only allowed to tell your stories because I'm really not interested in my life <laughs> that much. I think a lot of us become filmmakers to experience and delve into other types of existences. And to be totally honest, the journey and that question specifically sent me away from directing and deeply into cinematography. And I've spent all my time since, and then there was Eve as a cinematographer, because I learned that that is a place where you're allowed to be part of other people's stories. For what it's worth, I completely agree with you. And my joke I say is like, white guys were telling women's stories for like 100 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, there have been some exceptions, and they did a damn good job of it. And I think everyone should be able to tell someone's you know, everyone's <laughs> story. Yeah, as long as there's a heart and there's a dignity and a respect and, you know, an inclusivity to the whole process. You know, that's such a huge question. And the thing is that even right now, white men are still allowed to tell anybody's stories. And if you're a woman or a diverse person, you're expected to only tell your own stories. And so, you know, what if you are Native American and you want to tell the next Marvel movie? Like, what about that? So there's definitely a debate, particularly in the independent world right now, which is just another hurdle. I think it's all about like doing the research, you know, and getting the consultants and getting people to be involved with the project who have the the connection to the material in some capacity. I think if if you do that and you do your due diligence, like I, I don't think like why can't we tell stories of all kinds? You know, I don't I don't think that you know we should be limited based off of who we are and like who what stories we can tell because like, that doesn't seem well, that's not how the world has the world of storytelling has worked since the beginning of storytelling. And you know, I don't think that we need to bottleneck ourselves going further but it's all about respecting you know the story and respecting the people that you're telling the story about you know and so i think if you do that then i don't feel like there should be limits but you know that's just one opinion <laughs> i'm curious like what kind of pushback have you gotten have people been like you should have made this movie you're not allowed to tell the story like like what kind of pushback are you getting and is it like something where like the movie's being like boycotted by people or is it is it much smaller than that? Just like people mentioning to you like very casually about their feelings. I will say that our very first review after premiering at the LA Film Festival was from a trans person who said the road to hell is paved with good intention, I think was the title <laughs> of oh. that review. Wow. It said that it you know, I spent a lot of time rereading this, which I shouldn't. I like started promising myself because when I was in a bad mood, I'd just reread it. And I, I read that. I, I don't know. Do you guys do that? Like, I definitely do that. I do it all the time. Yes. <laughs> I like think we're both a little masochistic, though, Savannah, <laughs> is what I'm <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, she, she basically said that the film sympathizes with the wrong character, which is a crazy thing to say. 
Like, how can you say wh- which character we're allowed to sympathize with? It doesn't say that it doesn't sympathize with the trans character. It just says it spends the majority of the film with the wrong character, which, you know, I've had other reviews say it does spend, the, spend its time with the less interesting character. To me, that's very fair. But saying that it, you're not allowed to th- sympathize with the character is a strange thing for, to say. So I would say that's one that resonates the most. And you, was the first one. <laughs> you premiered at LAFF, which, you know, RIP LAFF. You won a jury award, if I'm not mistaken. What happens next in terms of distribution? Like, I'm hearing a little bit about press, but what happened in the release? So after that, actually before that, I had gone to Cannes Marketplace for... I went with another short that produced by Alexander Dove. And I, that's a little nice loophole, which is a, it's a shorts corner to get yourself like a a badge at Cannes. And so I had made some connections over there, which is where I believe I met Breaking Glass Pictures and a few other distributors and sales agents. That was an interesting experience because you put a piece of paper down and literally every single distributor just like points to the stars and they, 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 run their finger on it and they go, do I know this name or do I not know this name? And then it's just debating whether they talk to you or not. It's a, it was an interesting process. <laughs> and so I had actually taken that book and like reached out to so many places just to invite them to LAFF. And I think that's when we had certain deals kind of starting to go, right? They were not great deals, but that's when the conversation with Breaking Glass Pictures, we had a couple other ones we were talking to as well. Does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, well, I, w- I would be curious if you want to continue the conversation, but let- let's see what Ulrich has to explain. Yeah, like, w- like what kind of deals were they if you're feeling open to say? And, and then where did you end up, where did the film end up landing? Like, what was the distribution for the film? Like, how did that actually play out from there? So we had a sales agent who wanted to take it on and then breaking glass pictures. And that's kind of our, the, and then we, we had, um, another one as well, which was out of New York giant. Oh my God. I'm for blanking on their name. Giant, you know? giant pictures. It's not, it's something, is it giant? No, it's, it's something giant. Well, giant interactive slash giant pictures is my yes. distributor of my second feature. And oh. I know them very well. Well, they were wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I just, the, the reason, so out of, yeah, we were talking to them for a little bit and then we were talking to a handful of people, but I went with Breaking Glass Pictures because they were going to give us a one-week theatrical, which every filmmaker loves, oh, yeah. I think. I mean, seeing it on the big screen for a whole week at my favorite theater, I got to pick my theater. So wow. that was fun. They also had a, 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 a catalog of films I saw that were out there. And some of the other distributors I looked at, I I didn't recognize their titles and I didn't see a track record. Another thing I did was especially, and I'm not talking about giant at all. I'm talking about the other one, which I can't remember. I think it was a person, but I, I couldn't like a name of a person as the, the title, but I contacted all the other filmmakers and they were random people, but I contacted them and I asked them about their experience and it was a negative one. So that was something that led me to Breaking Glass, where most people had a negative experience I talked to as well, but their film was out there. And <laughs> as the filmmaker doing this, that's my other thing. Don't trust your filmmaker to do this when they're not, they have no financial benefit. Like at the end of the day, they just wanted to be seen. So that was my big reason to go with Breaking Glass. And we went with them. And in March 2018, as they agreed to, we did a one-week theatrical, and then three weeks later, it was available on VOD. And did you get any reviews or any press out of the theatrical run? Not really. Anything we got originally was from LAFF. We got the most press, and then from the theatrical, we had a couple, but nothing. They didn't do anything as far as, as that. Mm. If you could do it over again, what would you have done differently? So I actually didn't want, if if we go back to my original emails to my team, I never wanted to to go with Breaking Glass. I actually never wanted to go with anyone. I had a full self-distribution plan. I took one of those courses at Film Independent that was about self-distribution. And it was like a three-day intensive. And I learned so much. I wrote everything down into all the different categories. And I felt really confident 
knowing how to distribute this movie myself because it was a bit of a marketing disaster. And if you, I think it's a film that's really hard to distribute. Like it's a hard, we knew that going in. We're like, I don't know how we're going to market this film. But I felt like I knew, like it was like, I could do it. And I was the one I thought who would champion the film the most. And so I had a good plan and it was rejected by investors and producers who saw that I had no track record to self-distribute. So they preferred to go with the traditional, what they thought is a traditional model. And, you know, to backtrack a little bit, I, I think what's important here is that the timing of things that I think timing of how things have happened to this industry was not in my favor. And, you know, I don't know if this is your experience as well, but when I raised money for, and then there was Eve, it was not that hard because Netflix was buying indie movies for about 200,000 left, right, and center. Like I knew so many people who it was that number. In fact, I could have raised more budget, but I felt like I could absolutely guarantee 200,000 back because that's what was happening. But then in 2017, no Amazon and Netflix didn't buy a single movie at, at Sundance. And so everything shifted in that year. So I couldn't guarantee the actual model. Like the whole model that I, I pitched to investors was out the door <laughs> and everything had changed in the time I raised the money. And by the time we finished it, which was literally only two years. I, I want, oh, I like, I want to dig in for a second because I think it's funny because people talk about, oh, well, things are so different in distribution, but like, we could go on a timeline of 2016 to 2022 and something horrible has happened every single year to filmmakers who are releasing content. It's like, yeah, 2017, that's Sundance. But then I think 2018 Film Festival Stars program was either started or ended that year. So then like the upheaval and then the damage and the fallout and then blockchain rise and fall. I mean, it's just like always chaos. But going back to you saying it was easy, was it you just had like a bunch of rich people in your corner and you're like, I've been waiting to go to these people for my first feature? Or was it the content of the feature or what what teed it up for you? I think a combination of things. I think it was a bunch of people ready to invest some private equity with the potential of a you know tax write-off is usually something. But then my business plan, I think, and they it seemed to work, was pretty sound based on the data that had come just before. And the fact that I could name a lot of films that were bought by Netflix and Amazon for literally that number, and I could give an end game plan was very helpful. The subject matter was risky. And I think my investors knew that, but they were ready to maybe do something a little risky, like a little exciting. So I don't think the subject matter was helpful in raising budget. It would be, if anything, way harder to raise budget for this type of film, which is why I wanted to do it as my first feature. And I wanted to do it when I knew I had this one little you know, round of people I could go to once in a lifetime. Like I can't ever do this thing again. Like I'm going to have to make a <laughs> genre piece that can really sell if I ever want to find investment again. And so after all of a sudden done, like we're like, you know, four years after the release of the movie, like how much have you seen back from the distributor? Has it been, you know, 10% of the budget, 50% of the budget, less, more? Like what, what has the return been? So we haven't seen anything back. We didn't, we didn't see anything back and they just kept upping their expenses. So at a certain point, we took the film back. It it took took a long story short in 2020 or might have been 2019. I think it was beginning of 2020. It was the beginning of 2020. We took the film back and we had another place lined up for it who promised to quote unquote hug and care for the film, which was what Breaking Glass was not doing, was not like embracing the film for what it is and developing a creative plan that's specific to this niche. So they gave us a good idea of what they were going to do, which was exciting compared to the catalog that we were a part of at Breaking Glass. And so we made the decision. Again, I did not... When I say we, I mean... We like uh, not me. I, I the whole time I'm like self distribution, self distribution, and so I kind of got pushed to do this. And so then we waited. When was that? 2020. 
so yeah, the film has not been out there between 2020 and when we got the film back a couple months ago from that company that didn't do anything. A couple months ago. Wow. Wait, so hold on. Many, many questions. First <laughs> off... <laughs> Disaster zone. Do they literally like ch- say, send you a nuke report and they're like, oh, expenses went up? Or did it just like you quietly saw that they were raising the number like do they report it to you like they are oh we've incurred more expenses like and and can you tell like us what that expense cap like what it started at and what it ended at it's pretty obvious because certain things like social media had like i want to say like ten thousand dollars to it i'd never seen a social media post like and a post is free and i never even saw a post i maybe one wow certain things like that which were like incredibly obvious I will get, say that they Dear did other God. things in the beginning that did incur expenses that were that were legitimate. Like they made us an awesome trailer, they made us a great poster. So some of those types of material were created, they were comp, like done and good. So in the beginning, you know, it made sense. And then there was just no marketing. I mean, this is the thing that's so frustrating as an independent filmmaker. Like I would almost rather have a full bomb. Like, I would love if somebody was just like, this movie sucks. But at least somebody <laughs> saw it and said that. <laughs> the fact that you put literally five years of your whole life into something that never, like, sees the light of day because of no marketing is the bigger tragedy for me. Like, I just want it to be out there and be seen and be discussed. It's a, it's a film for me that just sparks discussion. And if you're sparking it in any direction, that satisfies my intention. But the fact that it ne- like didn't get to do anything like is the most painful part. Wow. I want to comment on something that we're glossing over very quickly. One is you were unhappy with your distributor and you found a way to take your film back. And I just want to like underline that. There's no questions. I just want to cheerlead you for a second. Because it means that filmmakers, there's still an option to get your film back if you're unhappy and there are ways to figure it out. Savannah figured it out. And second thing is a distributor can promise the moon and stars to you. The second distributor that I know we're not going to name names for, but I'll name. <laughs> okay, I'll I mean, name. <laughs> I, I'm nervous about naming names because I'm in the middle of a, I'm embroiled with them right now. <laughs> they will promise the moon and stars to you. And then they can just decide not to release your content unless you contractually stipulate that they have to do it within a certain time period. So what's the plan now? What's the plan after you've gotten your film back twice? So now this is like self-distribution is the game. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is where patience wins. I actually just put it on Vimeo on Monday. What day is it? Yeah. Monday. Monday it went live on Vimeo. And for the first time in like five years or however long it's been, we are in the green. <laughs> we have made money. Like Whoa, I, the first $10 came in. I texted everyone. I was like, we're in profit <laughs> immediately. I have a friend right now who like is trying to get a movie back from a distributor and it's very tough. So like, how were you able to get it back from, from Breaking Glass? Was it just a short two year window or were you able, like, how'd you get out of that contract? I mean, <laughs> trying to think how I can say this. I don't really know, to be honest. I think that there's, I would, I'll say we asked for it. There might have been some stuff that went down, but that I don't know about. But as far as I know, we at, we said, Hey, we don't believe you're accounting. And then they wanted to say, Okay, you can buy the film back. And then we're like, Well, we don't trust these numbers that you're, you're saying, you know, they were saying they're still in the red. And so I, I think we just kind of talked back and forth and decided in good faith to kind of, just go our separate ways. So here's the film back and yeah, no, just, just walk away. So I, I think wow. it was amicable. It was done nicely. Like everyone, I think playing nice, but also I, I don't know everything. I am a filmmaker, so I'm not the lawyer. Well, you, <laughs> yeah, you can do it. Cause I had to do this for a sales client recently where you can issue something called a disclaim agreement and a lawyer can draft that up and have both parties sign it. And what complicates things further, and I'm sure, Savannah, you experienced at least a taste of this, is that if the film has been pitched to platforms, then that comes like that history is now associated with your title as it goes to another distributor, making it less, quote unquote, attractive. Right. So 
and it depends on what window you're in. So you you were on trans- digital platforms and you did theatrical, but you hadn't gone to Avod, right? And you hadn't done Vimeo. And so there were still some windows for you to go into. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, a lot of doors were closed because of that. A lot of people didn't want to take on a quote unquote old film, which to me is kind of crazy because I don't, I don't know why we're obsessed with something being new. It could be new to somebody. But the other thing I want to mention that was driving me insane was that I was looking at the numbers on torrent sites and like the, it is on every torrent site. And the fact that we spent two years not available anywhere just made it get torrented so much. And people come up to me like, I saw your film. Like, how did you see, how did you see it? And then they'd like kind of, you know, backtrack a little and feel a little awkward. And I'm like, give me the name on the site because I'm sending it to our lawyers every few minutes. But <laughs> it's, it's, wow. I, st- I used to make lists and then I had to stop. What was the point of making these lists? But I saw like 90,000 downloads, like 100,000 downloads. And I, I was like, wow, this is, if we had a dollar for every download from a torrent site, I was like, if we can get a dollar from everyone who's looking, who doesn't intend to do, see, to, to download this for free, but just wanted to see the movie and had no access, then maybe it will be better. So that's why I thought, so let's put it on Vimeo while we're figuring everything out. It could be a terrible plan, by the way. No, I think <laughs> it's great. New. <laughs> I know we can't talk about the company's name, but can we talk about what happened at all? Or is, or is that off limits? Because I want to I want to yeah. hear like what the process was. Like, you know, you went with this other company. They said they were going to release it and then they just never happened. Like, what, tell us the details of that. Yeah, they had a plan for release and they kept pushing the date. Um, originally, it was, you know, let's say two months after we signed. And for me, certain dates were really important, like Pride Month. That's why I wanted to release for June, before June. Other dates that are important is Trans Day of Remembrance or Trans Day of Visibility. Um, those are all important days to, for people to watch this film. And so I think we centered around March, which might have been visibility. And so, yeah, they had a plan, which was like to get trans people involved and go the influencer route and they had named a bunch of people, but I guess they hadn't gone out to them yet, or they hadn't really done more as much research as they said they had. They also named a lot of places, like for instance, they were saying Showtime or people, they had connections at Showtime or HBO Max. And to me, that was pretty lucrative. We were actually, we actually cut our deal with Breaking Glass right before they were going to send the film to Peacock for June for Pride Month. So we actually ended our deal right before June when they were sending a package of films to Peacock, which would have been awesome. Like I was on board. I thought, you know, let's do that. And then, no, we wanted to go in this other direction. So we weren't available during Pride. And then, you know, at the end of this whole battle, which pissed me off so much, they ended up not going to Showtime or not being able to go to HBO Max, but they were going to go to Peacock. And I was like, we had Peacock two years ago. Like, (laughs) what is going on? So it just kept, the narrative kept changing. And I had zero faith from the first email. I could see right through it. But, you know, sometimes you just have to say, I trust you and let's see. And that's what we did. And I got a lot of, I, I was right, at the end of it, which is not <laughs> the thing I wanted to be right about. But I had an intuition, you know, a lot of people don't know, but, it, you know, as the filmmaker, or, you know, you guys know, as a filmmaker, what you've been through so much with the film that you know it inside out, you know, who's telling you who's being honest with, you, you know, who's not being honest with you. There's an intuition that comes along with the journey. They have to trust. And other people who hop on later don't aren't caught up to speed on that. Wow. I'm going to do an inelegant transition to the sandbox, which is what you... Because I, <laughs> my attempt here is... Because I know we could talk about this all day, but I, but I know we're running out of time. And I also want to acknowledge that this independent entrepreneurial spirit that you have can easily be found in other initiatives that you're creating. So can you tell us a little bit about the sandbox? Yeah. So sandbox is a... Directing and writing workshop that Morgan Dameron and I started in 2015 because we were both working on our first features and we were a little nervous going into production after not having spent enough time with actors. You know, it's sometimes as a director, you don't get the same playground as other crafts. You don't get to work on it all the time. You need a budget in order to practice. So we thought, let's come up with a space where we can practice in a very comfortable, safe environment, um, surrounded by peers who are being just as vulnerable. And we can 
build up our stories, build up our confidence with actors, build up our sort of verbal language to communicate. And so we created this space called Sandbox, where everyone meets and puts up scenes. It's been going once a week since May 2015, and we have not missed a week. Not the same people. We've had hundreds of people coming through it, but I'm pretty proud of that. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, then we didn't want to miss a week. So we put, we moved it online to writing, writing groups. And so now we have both going currently where groups of eight meet and, you know, we work on our material together, read each other's stuff, give feedback. And same with Sandbox in person, which is we put up scenes and we give feedback and then we get to run it again and, and rehearse and build our stories. So that's actually given me the confidence to come back and do another feature. So that, that's why I'm, I love it so much, just because it, it really does build you up and get you ready to go back out there and go through all this again. <laughs> nice. And so, the, sorry, the website for that, for anybody who's interested, any filmmakers <laughs> out there, is sandbox.la. Just to reiterate, it's not .com, sandbox.la. So after your whole experience of your first feature, which is like finally concluded, it sounds like, now you said you're, you're ready to get back out there and make another one. Like, what are you going to do differently after going through that first experience? Are there certain lessons that you learned on your first movie that you're hoping to take into your second? Definitely. I think some of them creatively would be that any issue that's there in the beginning is an issue that will be there at the end. So don't, don't look past what people say. It will, it will still continue to bother you. So yeah, I think, I think, uh, paying attention a little bit more to the, the end game. Like now, you know, when you make your first feature, you're trying to just get it done. You're not even, you don't think about what happens after that. And now that I have a better understanding of the full landscape, I think I can be a lot more prepared in certain decisions, whether that be casting or whether that be story design. I think I can prepare for a better outcome as far as distribution and visibility and it getting seen. So I will make probably more concessions. I think this film is as close to the most raw, honest expression of what I wanted as I'll ever get in my career. And I kind of knew that going in. And I think at this point, I'm ready to not be mad about it, but celebrate it and then just move forward. So budget size, like you talked about, you know, raising the budget for your last movie. And then you talked about how like going into your next one, you know, you joked about doing a genre film. So like, is this a genre movie? And then like, how much money are you hoping to raise for this one? Or do you know? Yeah, this next one is a, well, it's a rom-com. So <laughs> I don't think nice. it's genre. I, I'm playing with, with the horror in short form, but it's definitely a stretch for me. So I'm, I'm seeing if, if it can happen. And it's fun. It's so fun to learn a whole new genre. But I'm definitely playing within, I think, the boundaries a little more on this next one <laughs> than what you're supposed to do. Nice. And then as far as budget, I, I think that you do need a bigger budget in order to be more successful. You know, it's so hard. People do say you can make your money back under 200 grand, which is what I originally thought. I think probably I would have taken the other approach, which is to be a little more patient, raise a little bit more and go between the the one to $2 million range to give yourself a better shot at success. But I'm also, mm. I'm a cinematographer, so I'm down to like, just grab my camera and make the next feature, you know, with nothing because it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was curious about like your journey to cinematography, like from directing and what that was like, like, you know, what you found in cinematography that you like so much that like, you know, that you latched onto. I think cinematography is one of the most collaborative positions. You're always working with someone. You're either working with your gaffer, your first AC, so your genie team or your, your camera team. You're working with the director closely. When you're ordering or making your orders, you're working with the producer closely. It's not a lonely experience. And I find directing to be pretty isolating. And so that would be the main draw aside from telling stories visually, which I absolutely love. It also combines a lot of fun elements, which, you know, you get to do some, you get to be incredibly creative. You get to learn about technology. You're also somewhat of a manager and you take on a business a role as well when you're developing budgets. So for me, it just, encompasses all of the things I really love in, in one position. And again, you get to tell stories that 
aren't your experience. And for me, the best part is operating when I'm like right in it. I feel like an actor. I, I recently shot a music video where I was on stage and I was basically be, being the point of view of the pop star. And at the end, when we called cut, I turned to, to my friend who's a pop star and I was like, is this what it feels like to be you in this moment? And I was so excited because it was just like everyone's screaming at you and like holding their yeah. hands up and stoked. And you get to really viscerally experience other people's realities in a way that I don't know is possible. Um, and the way that that's what draws us to cinema. You have mentioned in the past that you you were told to define to define the success for yourself, like to think about what success means to you personally. And I'd be curious how you define success at this moment. At this moment or before and then there was ease. I want to know now at this moment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say I was battling with that question at the moment. I think it, life is different in your mid-20s than your mid-30s. You know, it's your needs are different. And I don't think I accommodated my... I didn't... I don't think I changed... I planned my life understanding the evolution of needs. Liz, I think you, you, you figured that out, right? I, I, I know. I, I feel like <laughs> I am actually, it's kind of like in an in-between stage for that. I need to answer that question. I don't have an answer right now. Here's another question. It's kind of similar to what I asked earlier, but like you achieved something that you were obviously proud of with your first feature and, and you told a story that was meaningful to you and you did something that was you know, it's huge, a goal, a huge achievement to make a feature. Like we, you know, we've all made features in this, you know, Zoom chat and we all know it's like insane. It's like the most insane thing you could possibly do to like do it. So going into your second one, like what are some things that you're trying to do that you didn't do on the first one? I think tell a, a story in a way that's a little more approachable for a larger audience. Hmm. And I have to be more careful. I wasn't careful with the first one. I think, you know, I got a lot of backlash and I really questioned my place in this industry. And for this next one, I'm telling a, a more personal story where I will, if I get backlash, then it's just going to hurt more, but <laughs> whatever, here we go. <laughs> Yeah. I think like the backlash, it's like what, you know, as artists, like we're, we're being very vulnerable when we're putting our stories out into the world, you know what I mean? Actors are even more so because they're putting themselves out into the world, you know, as these characters. So it's like, it's like these levels of vulnerability that's being exposed. But I feel like that is the risk you take, you know? And I think like in the end, it, it feels worth it, you know, even if you if someone doesn't like your movie or if there are crickets or if you only get 100 views on a short film or whatever it's just like you know it's just it's what it is and you just got to move on but it's like really really inspiring to hear like your journey like how challenging it was with your first feature like all the shit you went through and then you come out of the other end ready to make your your second feature it's like that to me is something to to really look up and be inspired by and like you know it makes me feel more excited about trying to go into my second feature. Like, okay, like if, if, if Savannah went, overcame that, like whatever happens when my feature comes out, I can overcome it. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, I can do it too. So. Oh, that makes me feel good. One of the takeaways that I would impart to, to everybody is I wish I was less precious with everything. You know, sometimes you have in, in a, in a time of a, when you have an abundance, you're less precious, right? But when you're so afraid that you'll never get another chance, you're so precious and you think this is the last bit and then you become kind of a crazy person. And so I wish that I had the foresight to look at this career as a long career and not the first and only, but that just to move past whatever happens and make the next thing and not think that the this is, this is the only thing that defines me. Because I think I got trapped in that that sort of logic for a while being like, oh, this is it. And I am, I'm not allowed to do anything ever again because this didn't work out. So if I could just move forward and do the next thing, and maybe it's not the next one that, that hits, maybe it's the one after. And we all know timing is a big, important thing. So at the end of the day, I think some of the people I surround myself that have been the most successful, they take the hit and they take the loss and they just move on to the next one. And maybe that one's a win. Well, with that, I think we should move on to our final six questions. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Well, this was the first, and then there was Eve is the first 
feature. Is that what we mean? You could do that one or first short, first sketch, whatever. Ah, okay. First first thing ever made, I, it was a feature in high school called Admit Me huh. <laughs> about the ridiculousness of trying to get into college. And I think it's hilarious because I now teach at USC. So <laughs> that one's fun to look back on. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I will give this credit to Jen Prince and Jennifer Weberly. The beginning of them, then the receive, they said, define success for yourself. And that was important. I don't know if that's advice, but I think it, I've taken that with me in a lot of different adventures or ventures. <laughs> yeah. It's important before you embark on something to define what success means to you. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? I'm going to say what my dad says. Can't you just re- reverse engineer it? <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> Amazing. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yes. How do I put it? Wow, what a question. I probably should have remembered this. <laughs> do I have a goal as a filmmaker? I my goal is to tell to make people think about things that they may be confronted with on a daily basis in a completely different way. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? It's a long road. Be patient and be present for the joyful moments. I like that. Last question. Is making movies hard? So hard. (laughs) But worth it. Nice. (laughs) Savannah, tell us where people should go to learn more about you. Like, you know, where Sandbox, your movies, whatever, uh, And There Was Eve. Put it all out there. Awesome. Yeah. You can watch And Then There Was Eve on Vimeo On Demand right now. $2.99. You can... Go to Sandbox to join some of our writing groups and elevate your work as a filmmaker. Find community, sandbox.la. You can check out my work as a cinematographer at www.savannahblockbloch.com. And you can also come go to USC and catch some classes that I teach in the, (laughs) the grad program. I teach cinematography. So, and we shoot on film. So fun. Wow. Awesome. I think we have to disband now, if that's okay, Aura. Awesome. But that was wonderful. Thank you. This felt a little therapeutic. It felt cathartic, actually, after that. That's the goal. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Aurek, what do you remember about our chat with Savannah? I remember that Savannah was very cool and thought it was really interesting that she had this really hard time with the distribution of her first feature and like was like screwed over lots of difficulties finally got the movie back is like finally you know kind of going on the right path now it sounds like but yeah what a terrible road for her to be on and it's interesting like that drove her to want to you know do like cinematography and like not have to be like the creative force behind a project from start to finish but it's kind of cool to see like how going through that process doing you know becoming a cinematographer like focusing on that getting the movie back and like now she seems to have the energy and the excitement to go into her next feature project Mm. as a director which i thought was like really encouraging that's like well you might you might be you know in these this really low place for a while or like you know like turned off or you know somehow discouraged but then like if you keep yourself going then there is a way back so that was really cool from her story well i love that it was yet again dispelled the myth of meritocracy right so like i've seen the movie i saw the movie to support to support savannah a while back and chrissy has a small role in it as well and anyway so i i wanted to support it thought it was great I know her producers pretty well as well. And the film won a jury award at Los Angeles Film Festival, which doesn't exist anymore, but was our big Southern California Film Festival. So it's like you think of these situations where you kind of know from a distance, oh, wow, this film has it all. Like, it's great. It's really thought provoking. It's well made. It's low budget. So there's potential for profiting. It has prestige and reviews. And then, you know, unless someone like Savannah is brave enough to go and tell the story of how things went wrong, the myth of meritocracy will still proliferate in our minds. Like, oh, well, that film probably did great and it probably made lots of money. And Savannah probably 
probably has this super fantastic career and we should all despair comparing ourselves against her. And <laughs> I really liked that she was able to, um, she was kind enough to be so transparent about how it's hard for her, just like it's hard for everyone else. And that you can have a situation where you can have the support of the art house system, right? Like top tier festivals and press and whatever it is. And you can still not get the results that you want. So I, I just thought they're so cool. And I love how she just kept on wanting to be like really honest. Like we had, I, I like, I had to stop her because I didn't want her to be as honest as she wanted to be, which is amazing. So thank you, Savannah. Other things that are amazing, but not quite as amazing as Savannah is this article from the Hollywood reporter from J. Clara Chan. It's entitled even top creators find that star power is fleeting, which was a really exciting, buzzy title, which is what these titles are supposed to be. They're very exciting. But then you read the article and it's like, well, <laughs> is it fading? Because maybe it doesn't seem like it is. One of the, the examples she gave was that the numbers dropped from attend- attendees numbers from VidCon, this big, uh, humongous you know, conference for influencers and YouTube, TikTok, all that shit that dropped like 25,000 from 2019 pre-pandemic to 2022 post-pandemic. And it's like, oh, so you had 75,000 people in 2019 and you have 50,000 people who came in 2022, 50,000 people came to an event post-pandemic. That's a lot of fucking people, man. That's crazy. I don't, I don't really know that many events with that many people, you know, post pandemic that are happening. So I, I didn't really feel like that was that big of a drop. And, you know, the other thing that they said was like, oh, you know, one of the, the top TikTok person who like was the top TikTok creator for 20, for like two years, basically. Charlie D'Amelio, right? Yeah. I don't even know who that is, but you know, whatever the person and they got overturned by this other person. And it was like, yeah, I think one had a 145 million followers and the other person has 142 million followers. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. Like this person has 142 million followers and you're worried about this person. And then they're like, oh, and, and they had like her, her presentation in VidCon was in the main room with the other booze and stuff. It's like, but oh, their fans were still there. It's like, well, of course, what are you saying? It just seemed like, you know, maybe it was this mega, mega crazy thing in 2019 where like it felt like the Beatles, like people screaming and going nuts over these influencers. And then in 2022, maybe we're just a more mature, a little bit more subdued society after the pandemic. And it's just not <laughs> the same reaction as it was before. But it seems like the fans are still there. They cited all these different brands who are getting into like, you know, influencer marketing and getting these huge contracts with influencers. So I don't really, I kind of call bullshit on this title. Like, I, it seems like they're doing fine. But I don't know, Liz, what do you think of this article? No, I agree. It was as per usual, it was a flashy headline with content that didn't really reflect the headline. So I'm on board for that. And I was trying to figure out like the takeaways. I was like, what could I take away from this article? Because like you, I was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> like, there are a million reasons why, you know, ticket sales or whatever past sales are down or why one TikToker will out outgrow another TikToker. These are, I can't believe we're having these conversations. <laughs> one thing was interesting was how they talked about growing an audience. And a few creators said, you have to be platform agnostic. You have to be everywhere. And we, that's something we could take away as filmmakers. And that's something I say to my clients too, is like, okay, so you don't use Twitter, you don't use Facebook, you don't do Instagram, like create a landing page. So you're everywhere. Just, you know, you might not feel the need to put 100% effort on every single platform, but be there so that you find the audience. And I think TikTok exploded, right? But there's going to be another platform after TikTok. There's going to be something else after that. There used to be Vine. There used to be Boomerang. There used to be Periscope. You know, there's always going to be something new. So all these TikTokers are going to have to continue to be nimble and pivot from platform to platform. The other thing that I took away is both Charlie and Kabi Lame, and I'm mispronouncing both of their names probably, use nonverbal storytelling and their massive hits. It's like Charlie is a dancer and Kabi does these kind of like hack my environment videos where he shows people like inefficiencies that he can fix. And like, I do love that as well. Like we could do so much more on a global basis as creators if we focus on nonverbal storytelling, grow our audience and to cross barriers outside of North America. So I'm just thinking about those two things. But as far as the article goes, 
whatever. Yeah. Where's our Louis Vuitton deal, Liz? We, we got to get that going. How do, we, yeah. how do we do that? How do we get our big ass sponsors? I don't, I don't know. That's what we got to figure out. Become influencers. Yeah, we got to get millions of hits, baby. No problem. Let's do it. So I wanted to talk to you about something. I, I was watching a lot of stuff over the weekend, as I, I think I mentioned. You know, I watched Stranger Things. I watched the first couple episodes of C on Apple TV, which was really, really cool. And what else? I, was, I mean, I mean, I'm watching The Boys. I'm watching For All Mankind. And I watched I watched Irma Vep. Have you ever seen this? Not yet. No. Was it great? I didn't watch the show. I watched the original movie yeah. from 1996 that it was based, the new show is like based on. And uh, it was a trip. What a weird movie. It's very French. You know, you, you got to have a, a scene where a woman is completely naked having a conversation on the phone in a French film. And this, this movie's got that scene. So, uh, no, it was cool. I'm glad I watched it. I, I don't think I'd ever watch it again, to be honest, but it was cool. But I guess what I'm, like, what I'm trying to get, get, get at is like, you know, what, what we'll do when we're watching things is like, you know, we, we start watching it. And then if, if it loses our interest or it, like we call bullshit on it and within like 10, even even after a whole episode, it's like, you know, we won't keep keep watching it. Like it just, if it doesn't get, catch our interest. Right. Yeah. So my question to you is like, what about a thing engages you? Like, it, like I know for me, it's like a lot to do with the story, but for you, I know it's not necessarily story at all. Like plot doesn't really, isn't the only thing that you care about when you're watching something. So like, what are the things that you look for or that you, that you respond to in a piece of art that keeps you hooked? I was, I was thinking about it and I was thinking about, because we watch a lot of movies and then we watch TV, but I would say probably less TV than movies. But the things that we watch, you know, like I love Search Party. I love Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, Stranger Things. And I would say they actually all have this thing in common where they're really surprising and they never, they always subvert my expectations. So like search party like i never know what's going to happen in that show like it goes balls to the wall crazy constantly and that's exciting right you're watching to see like well how weird are they going to get today and with ted lasso it's like always unexpectedly heartwarming in ways that you never thought it would be so you're you're watching to get that kind of like taken aback like swoon feeling i think mm. those are the highs that i'm looking after and then of course like a love story a good love story will keep me going mm. for a very long time mm. but those are the things that keep me going is actually like as per usual more esoteric aspects of a show but i usually only watch things when i hear from multiple people oh you got to check it out like mm. i'm not watching trailers people are just like you got to see it and then i go and i see it and but i would like to hear more about why you keep watching well it's really interesting that you brought up Ted Lasso because I, I like really liked the first season. Like I felt the things that you were saying, like I felt that was true when I was watching the first season, like it was keeping me on my toes. It was unexpected. There was something heartwarming about episodes. There's also like really unexpected jokes sometimes that were mm -hmm. great. And then going into season two, like I just couldn't stand it. Like I just thought like it was like a pale reflection of what the first season was. Like it, I can it didn't, see that. it didn't have the same weight. The story wasn't as interesting. The characters weren't as interesting. They took turns that I didn't find enjoyable or exciting to watch some of the characters. And it just kind of felt like more of the same, but just not as well thought out or as, as well executed, mm -hmm. you know, and and like, and it, and it just lost me. Like, so I think I watched like two episodes of season two and then I was done. It got better, by the way. I felt the exact same way. It got <laughs> oh, better. I promise you. You, you. you stayed. Did it yeah. get better in season two or by season three? Well, we're not in season three yet, right? So, oh, okay. oh, so by, I would say a couple episodes two to three episodes into season two, it got better. It corrects. Okay. But I felt like they were leaning on their laurels a little too mm. much for the beginning of season two. Well, you know, it's basically like Major League, right? Like that's like the story of this movie, the show. It's like a Major League like ripoff or, you know, update or whatever you want to call it. It's like total, it's Major League. Yeah. And it's great. It's great because Major <laughs> League is great and Telasso is great and like the way that they, they spin League. it, you know, is really cool and that's like this American football coach going to soccer in London. It's great. It's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just, I didn't feel like the way that they, they set up the storyline for this, for the first season was so like, everything was important. Every episode counted. And like the first episodes I saw of season two, it didn't feel like they mattered to the story. And like, I didn't, and then I, whatever they're going I for, I didn't even care. I was like, I, whatever this, I'm done, <laughs> but maybe I'll give it another shot. 
I guess for me, it's it's like it's all the things, but I think for me, it's really story and that and that like I'm not guessing where it's going before it gets there, or if I am guessing where it's going, that it gets there very fast and then it's on to something else. Because like what a lot of times, like you 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 can see the trope coming, you can see this the storyline coming, and then all of a sudden they instead of doing what they would do in an old show or in a previous story over the arc of the whole show, they do it with in the, the rest of the episode, you know, and by the end of the episode, right, that right. is resolved and they're on to something else, you know, or even better. It's like, then you're like, you get that, you see that setup happening. And then it's like, like taken away, like in the next scene, you know, and it's like completely like, Oh, derailed, you know, like the secret that you yeah. thought they were going to keep to their chest the whole time is revealed to the other character or whatever it is. And I think like when, when it subverts, it, it exactly. Subverts those or it gets yeah. it going, you know, it keeps it going. So like, yeah. you're not wasting time on something that you already know is going to happen, you know? Yeah. So I think those are some of the things. And then obviously like the production value really, really does matter. I mean, I've been watching a lot of Apple shows lately and I've also been watching like the Marvel shows and the Disney shows and we were watching Obi-Wan and I don't know, you don't watch this stuff. I don't think, right? No, no. So Obi-Wan's production value and a lot of those Marvel shows, it's just not as high as, as Apple TV show or like Stranger Things, for instance. It's just not the same level of like, you know, like cinematography or even set dressing or costumes. Like it's just not at the same high level as what you expect to see on Apple or Netflix even. And it's like, wow, like I, I, I was so shocked. Like watching Obi-Wan and just being like, why are they having another battle in a like completely muted bleak location that is like just basically a bunch of rocks on a random planet? Like this is boring. Why did you set your scene here? Like you could set it anywhere you want. Why boringest place in the in the world? They had two fight scenes like that where it's like set in the most boring places where you're watching Darth Vader fight Obi-Wan and you're like, what the hell were you guys thinking? <laughs> like, why is it so boring? Hey. So does that mean you're leaving? Oh, like are you not no, watching anymore? I'm just upset. I just, I just feel like, <laughs> like I like because the Mandalorian, like they did a really great job, like with their with their sets and like with what are they doing with their um the vault, you know, with their 3D backgrounds or whatever. It was incredible, like really impressive, like high quality stuff. And then when you get given something that's not at the same level, it's like so noticeable, you know. Maybe the whole the whole money, all the money went to you, and you know, it's like I wonder. What if, what was that? Know. Maybe that. Yeah, but I mean, Miss Marvel has great production value, and like that that show seems to be at the same level for, for the most part, you know. And same with um, you know, WandaVision was like really like looked like a Marvel movie as a show. So it's like I, I but like, but not all of them. Like Hawkeye, it looked good, but. Eh. You know, it's just not quite at the same level. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? You can't treat it like lesser than your your movies. You have to treat it at the same level. Yeah. Like it should have the same production yeah. value as like the new Thor movie, you know, like it shouldn't be lesser. So I think those are some of the things that I like react to. But it really, in the end, it all comes into story. Like if the story is good, I can forgive all those other things. Like as long as I'm engaged with, with the story. Or if the chemistry. Chemistry too. Yeah. And, th- and that's one of the things like Obi-Wan has some actors who are very charismatic, especially... Um, Moses Ingram as as the bad guy yes. Reva Reva she's amazing she was fantastic and also completely okay. shat on by the internet which was like oh, so stupid and enraging that's like the best part of the show people are complaining and you're like what are you guys fucking stupid idiots you are obviously stupid idiots oh, the internet's the worst the internet is like, but why oh. why do they have to be oh. so stupid it's so mean it's, oh, it's terrible anyways anything else to say Liz or should we should we should we go on should we end this madness end the madness you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And if there's something that you guys want us to talk about, like I, I just come, you know, if, if we don't have a listener question or an email or something to read, I just pull something out of my ass or Liz does. Either one of us does. So if you guys have something that you guys want us to talk about or some topics or something, send them us our way and we'll, we'll discuss them. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and at YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks so much to Savannah Block for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing and to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. And thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next week. 
sound, you hear me? Does it sound good? Yeah, you sound all right. Keep talking okay, again. Good. Boom, boom, boom. Shakalaka, yeah. bing bong. Yeah. Okay, cool.